Welcome back to One on One, New York's longest running sports call-in show. I'm Tom Quigley alongside Colin Lochran, and we are pleased to be joined by Bob Glauber. He's an NFL writer for Newsday. He served as president of the Pro Football Writers of America from 2018 to 2020. And he's the author of a couple books, including The Forgotten First, co-written by Super Bowl 37 champion Keyshawn Johnson. Bob, thanks so much for coming on to chat with us today. My pleasure. And now you mentioned the longest running sports show. Uh, any any alumni that I know that have uh, kind of come before you? Yes. Have you ever heard of uh, a man named Vince Lombardi? <laughs> well, I guess no. He's a Fordham alum. Uh, but we got Vince Scully. Uh, right. We got, um, you know, Tony Reale, uh, Michael Kay, Mike Breen, uh, plenty of big names. There you go. Uh, those, <laughs> uh, that's my generation. So that's good. Welcome. Yeah, so, Welcome um, uh, good luck to you in the future, too. Thank you. Yeah, that's what we all aspire to be, something like them. But um, this is about you, and uh, I'd love to get into the book, uh, The Forgotten First, because, you know, uh, it's somewhat of an untold story about the four men who integrated professional football in the year 1946. And uh, from that moment in time to today, you know, where we have Dolphins head, former head coach uh, Brian Flores suing the NFL for racial discrimination in its hiring practices, um, in what areas have you seen the league improve its treatment of black players and coaches? And in what areas do you think uh, it still has work to do? Well, just if I, if I might go back and, and just kind of give you the, the premise of the book, you know, it's about the first four guys who broke the color barrier in modern pro football in 46. So it's Kenny Washington, Woody Strode with the Rams and uh, Bill Willis and Marion Motley with the, the Cleveland Browns. And, you know, from that time, this is now the 75th anniversary season of that first year. So it's kind of an important milestone and it's an important check uh, to see how the league has done. And I would say with players, um, you know, this the NFL is a true meritocracy. Um, the best players play regardless of skin color. And I think the last barrier to that was quarterback. You know, there was a long time when coaches did not think black quarterbacks could succeed, quite frankly. And it took until 1987 when Doug Williams won the Super Bowl with Washington to kind of finally break that barrier down. And now to the point where black quarterbacks have just as much of an opportunity as white quarterbacks. I think the area where the league still has a long way to go is, is in the head coaching position. And Brian Flores has kind of brought that um, into focus. And there's tremendous attention on that not only because of him, but because of the last several coaching hiring cycles. Now, um, Lovey Smith uh, did get a, a job as the Houston Texans head coach after a long and meandering search. I, I still think they wanted to hire Josh McCown uh, as their head coach. Um, no experience, backup quarterback, terrific coaching mind. I, I know Josh McCown very well, and he is going to be born to be a coach, but to give him a head coaching job right now is just, you know, it's, it's clunky. It's, you know, especially when you have guys like Eric Bieniemy and others who are completely qualified, not getting jobs and, and Brian Flores getting fired after two winning seasons in a row, which a Dolphins coach had not done that in several years. So they do have quite a ways to go in terms of head coaches. I think things are getting a little bit better in administrative positions, general manager, coordinator positions, uh, but it's that head coaching position that that really comes front and center. 
still a lot of progress to be made and always a lot of people who seem to stand in the way of progress. Bob, I'm wondering, as you were searching for the book, were you able to learn more about certain owners such as George Preston Marshall and Tim Mara, who kind of stood in the way of integration? Yes, Colin. It's, it, was, it was quite startling to realize. And now, like I've been covering football for way longer than you guys have been alive probably as long as your parents have been alive, right? <laughs> Maybe not that long, but it's a long time. And I never knew the story of Kenny Washington and Woody Strode and, and Marion Motley and Bill Willis. Just, just never knew it. Just never knew that there was a period in the 1930s and 1940s that, where there were zero black players in the National Football League, none, to the point where it's 70% African-American today. So when you look back, well, it'd say, well, hey, why? Why were there no black players? Then? And, and, you know, you mentioned George Preston Marshall. He he owned the Washington team back then, and uh, he was a, an admitted segregationist. He was he was a racist man. And to, to not only till the day he died, but after he died, it was written in his will that no money would go toward any cause that promoted integration. I mean, how that's really a, a twisted mind. Uh, and you know, we look at that now and say, well, how could anybody be like that? But people were like that. And certainly people still are like that to some degree. But George Preston Marshall kind of was the front facing owner of that time in the NFL where black players were not wanted. And the other owners, now these are talking, you're talking about foundational owners, George Hallis, uh, Tim Mara came on in, in 1925, five years after the league formed, um, but they went along with it and they were kind of quietly um, in lockstep, you'd have to say. I mean, they, they may not have agreed with it, but they didn't fight it. They didn't challenge it. And that includes Art Rooney, um, whose family now is kind of connected to trying to offer diversity and, and improve diversity in the league. Um, so there, it was a very disturbing time in, in pro football history then, and the eventual integration signaled this sweeping uh, move to, to bring in black players. It didn't happen right away. It took many years for it to be widely accepted that black players could play in the NFL, were smart enough to play in the NFL. They didn't think, and a lot of owners didn't think they were smart enough to play in the NFL, especially at positions like quarterback, like center, like middle linebacker, the, the, the middle of the field where supposedly you need brains and black players were not trusted many years ago to run those positions. So it was a, you know, a, a disturbing time. Um, but when you learn about it and then when you learn how far the league has come, you know, thank, thank goodness we're not back there, um, but, but there is still, still a ways to go. Yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, uh, somewhat of a, a forgotten history that, that this book kind of brings to light. Um, but on the other side of this, in the MLB, uh, we all know Jackie Robinson. We've all been taught about, uh, you know, the way that he came into the league in 1947, broke the color barrier. Um, and that's kind of been commemorated into Jackie Robinson Day in the MLB every April. I think it's usually the 15th. Maybe they change the date around now, but everybody wears the 42 number. Um, in their games, no matter what. Uh, so do you think that the NFL should, in a similar way, commemorate those first few players uh, that integrated 
uh, the NFL in a, in a similar fashion or something like that? You know, I think that would be a great idea. I don't know how feasible it is. I don't know if there is a will to do that. I think that, you know, the NFL is commemorating the, the, the legacies of these four men at the Super Bowl. And, and that's, that's a big step. Um, and I don't think they did it knowingly um, to be ignorant or to purposely move away from that time. I just, you know, it just was not on their radar, but it has gotten on their radar and they are uh, bringing in the families of the four players who broke the color barrier in modern pro football. So I, I, I commend them on that. I, I don't know. I mean, you, you could, you know, you obviously can't put the Jersey numbers on them because it's a, a lot more complicated in football than it is in baseball. Um, but I think you, they, they can and, and should do something to really honor these guys um, in a, in a meaningful way and in a consistent way. And I will point out that, you know, baseball, I think does it the right way with Jackie Robinson. Baseball has got a lot of problems, especially in labor. But one thing they get right is honoring the legacy of Jackie Robinson, by the way, who played with Kenny Washington and Woody Strode for the UCLA football team in 1939. Washington and Robinson were baseball teammates as well. And many people think that Washington was a better college baseball player than Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Um, but the thing that's interesting or unusual and, um, you know, you have to kind of pay heed to it is in baseball, representation among black players is way down. I believe less than 10% of players in Major League Baseball are black. Yet the league does honor Jackie Robinson in this way. And on, on the flip side, the NFL is 70% African-American and the league really doesn't honor these guys. But I, I'd like to think that the attention now has been drawn to these men and their legacies can be remembered in a meaningful way uh, for, for a long time to come. They deserve it. They, they went through a ton. They went through what Jackie Robinson went through, just a lot quieter and not with, with a lot less attention and a lot less publicity. But the league, the league was in its formative stages then. It was not what it is today, but it was a, a, a regular professional league uh, that, that had a, a quite a big following at that time. Well, the New York Giants are certainly no strangers to these types of discussions, especially lately. Uh, for better or worse, they've continued on with their new hires. Of course, Brian Dable, the new head coach, coming via Buffalo, and Mike Kafka coming via the Chiefs as that new OC. I'm wondering, Bob, what do you make of these new hires? Well, I think just from a purely football point of view, they're good. Um, I think Brian Dable is one of the best offensive minds in football. Uh, Mike Kafka is, um, you know, the, the metamorphosis of Mike Kafka has been quite remarkable. I don't know if you guys caught that. You guys didn't read Metamorphosis? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, God. My God. All right, listen, you got to Google Franz Kafka, Metamorphosis, and then Mike Kafka. So that's the joke there. You'll see when you Google it, you'll say, oh, now I get it. So, um, so, so Mike, Mike is, a, is a good offensive mind, good quarterback developer uh, who came, comes from the Andy Reid tree. And um, now Wink Martindale, uh, the new defensive coordinator from, from Baltimore, is a very aggressive guy. So I think coaching-wise, um, the Giants are in a much better position now uh, than they had been. Look, Joe Judge, you know, he, he tried, he took a, took his swings and 
just don't know that he was ready um, to kind of be the, the kind of head coach in the NFL uh, that, that needed to be. He might end up being a good head coach. I look at him more, you know, getting to watch him and know him. He might be better suited for, for the college game, just, just his, his mentality. Yeah, so, I mean, in keeping with the New York team, since we're a New York-centric station, I got to ask you about the other team in East Rutherford. Um, obviously, the New York Jets had some new personnel this, this year. It's nothing short, really, of an, of an experiment with the rookie quarterback in Zach Wilson and first-year head coach Robert Sala. Um, I don't think many expected the Jets to have immediate success with uh, this scheme, but, uh, and obviously they did not. But all things considered, how would you grade the performance of both these newcomers on the New York Jets? Well, I think it's incomplete. It's inconclusive because it's only been a year. But I do think you saw some encouraging signs, especially when Zach Wilson did come back from injury. He missed five weeks. Um, he had the knee injury, but he was a better quarterback when he came back than he was in the beginning of the season. He was very turnover prone, especially with interceptions. And I think he had a better sense of the game when he did come back. And that, that often happens with rookie quarterbacks, especially your mind is swimming in the beginning and you have a chance to kind of sit back and, and, and you get better as, as you learn and um, kind of grow with it. So, and I think Robert Sala got better as a, as a first time head coach. I, I like him. I, I like, and, and I think the players like him in terms of he's a very even keeled guy. You know, he came with a reputation of being excitable on the sidelines. He had a get back coach, in San Francisco, a guy would kind of have to keep him off the field to, to, to keep from getting penalties. Um, but but he's very calm and a calming presence. And I think that's important with a growing program when you have so many first-year players and so many young players and coaches uh, trying to get better. So I think now the payoff will be in years two and three when these guys have experience and they can kind of use what they've learned in, in a very difficult first year and, and hopefully get better over time. I think part of that payoff has to do with the weight we put behind awards and accolades, championships, things like that. And rightfully so in, in some cases, maybe the highest honor in all of football is to be elected into the hall of fame in Canton, Ohio. If I'm not mistaken, you've had the privilege of covering the voting selection process. Could you take us through that process, Bob? Well, you know, it's a very interesting process. What we're prohibited from doing is speaking about the conversations in, in, the, in the room. We call it a room because we used to meet in person. Now it's via Zoom because of COVID. But um, so basically it works where there are, there are many, many players who are nominated for Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, induction, right? So you, you whittle that down. And we as voters, there are 48 voters, and we whittle that number down. Uh, during the year, and it gets down to 25 uh, modern representatives of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And then from there, we vote to get it down to 15 and for five spots in modern player uh, selection. So in that final meeting that we have, we had it earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the results have not been announced and will be announced uh, this week. Um, we go from 15 to five and it's a pretty intense discussion period. Uh, I think it's an honest process. I think it's uh, any, anyone who's been in that room and this now includes hall of fame players uh, like James Lofton and Dan Fouts and 
you know, Bill Pulley and a Hall of Fame general manager is in the room. We get a sense, you know, when you when you hash it out over six, seven, eight hours, hey, you, you, you did your best to, to make this a representative list of who deserves to be enshrined because it is the ultimate honor. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, process and obviously um, a lot going into it. But um, I wanted to ask you about the Super Bowl because it's it's pretty clear that you're in Los Angeles right now. And um, I, guess, I guess I have a couple questions. First, what are you doing this week and for the game? What, uh, what do they have you doing in L.A.? Well, we as writers, uh, during the week, we write our tails off. Uh, this is, we, we call it Super Bowl Hype Week, and uh, we, are the, we are the engines who, who make that hype go. We write about the players, you know, Odell Beckham, Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup, um, Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and, and, and on and on, and the coaches as well. So it's, um, it's a very fun experience. It's a very intense experience. You know, fun, I, I kind of use as a relative term, if you're a writer um, with, with a lot of, um, it's like writing a lot of papers uh, toward the end of your term, man. It's not, it's, it's not that fun, but you get through it and, you, you know, you're in a, a pretty, pretty cool spot and you see a lot of neat things going on. Yeah, we actually, uh, we sent four of our own students uh, from WFUV to LA this week. Uh, in fact, one of my uh, friends and coworkers here, uh, I think asked Jamar Chase about uh, Mac Jones gritty uh, that he did after scoring a fake touchdown in the Pro Bowl. Um, but um, that's great. <laughs> so uh, it's a very interesting uh, experience for them, I'm sure, as well. And uh, with the Super Bowl coming up on Sunday, we get to see two championship starved franchises uh, and a couple QBs that have never played on this stage before. What do you see as some of the key storylines headed into Super Bowl Sunday? And what's your prediction for how the game plays out? Well, I think you have you always have to start with the quarterbacks. This league has become a league of, of quarterbacks, coaches and quarterbacks. So, you know, you start with McVay and Taylor and you go to Stafford and, um, and Joe Burrow. I think you, you always have to start there. And then one of the matchups I'm, I'm – fascinated by slash concerned about if you're the Bengals is, you know, they, they went out and got Jamar Chase and that was the right move. Um, I was like, they really going to get a receiver when Joe Burrow got, got crushed with a, with a, you know, career threatening type injury, but they did it. And, th and that was the correct move. They didn't go for offensive line, but you know, in Tennessee, uh, they, they beat the Titans. Uh, the Titans were an offensive challenge team, but they beat them despite Joe Burrow getting sacked nine times. So that matchup kind of fascinates me with, the Rams pass rush being very good. So I think if the Rams can cover Jamar Chase, and that means Jalen Ramsey probably shadowing him, I give them uh, the advantage here. And unless the the Rams offense kind of sputters, which has been the case um, at, at times, but if they can kind of keep it together, um, I, I give them the advantage. So I'm, I'm going to go with the Rams on this one. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have. Uh, but I want to thank you once again for joining us today, Bob. I'm sure it's been a very busy week for you. Uh, so thanks so much for taking the time for us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.